So I continued reading, and it went on to say the doctor who led the study noted that vaccine ingredients have a short lifetime and have no way of making it into breast milk. Well, now I'm definitely not believing what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because breast milk comes from blood, and anything that is in the blood obviously has some way of getting into breast milk. Mm -hmm. Right? Absolutely. And we, we do see that all the time. Um, a lot of times what our providers are using is rhetoric. So what we did is separated out moms that reported that they had symptoms and moms that did or did not have symptoms after the vaccine. And so the moms that said that they did have symptoms, their babies were four times more likely to have symptoms than the others. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Welcome, everyone, to a very important and special episode. We have Dr. Caitlin Crutch with us from Texas Tech University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Crutch. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, let's just, you know, we're going to talk about a vaccine study that you guys have done on breastfeeding moms. And the key goal and objective of this episode is to help the parents out there recognize rhetoric versus research. And also, by the end of the episode, I'd like you to be able to educate us and teach us a bit um, on understanding how to read research when we don't have a background in science. But let's just start by having you tell everyone who you are, your background, your degree, and what you guys are doing at the Infant Risk Center. Absolutely. So I've been at the Infant Risk Center here for a couple of years with Dr. Hale, who is known worldwide um, for his work on medication transfer into breast milk. And so uh, that's what I work with with him. And what we try and do is not just do the research. Um, the reason that we ended up starting the center here is because it, it was something that no one was looking at. Um, unfortunately, what happens a lot with lactating women is they, you know, it's, it's pregnant and lactating and everyone looks at pregnancy and there's not a lot of looking at lactation. And so that's our, one of our very, um, central purposes here. So um, my background is I have a degree in nutrition, a degree, a degree in business and a degree in pharmacy. So um, it is quite the, the wide breadth. And uh, soon I will have a degree in translational science as well, which is um, helping understand why the research that we do, the things that we, um, that we define as known, how, why that information doesn't get to the final user in a way that they are willing to, um, to accept it and to use it because, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll know many things that are good for us that we choose not to do. Um, and so there's so many steps along the path of your decision and your medical provider's decisions. And, um, even just the decisions of, of people in sharing information with you so that you have the opportunity to see it. And, uh, so by the time you get to the end, you know, we want decisions to be evidence-based, you know, so we want those best decisions to be put into practice. And like I said, you know, it's, it's something that's inherent. We all 
probably have thought about it before. You know, you think about how you know that you should exercise, you know that you should eat right. You might even know what good exercise or good food looks like, and we don't always make the best choices. And so, um, you know, it's just kind of moving that information along until people make the best choices that they can. We see that so often in breastfeeding that women think they can't breastfeed because of something that they're doing in their life or a medication that they're taking. And I personally, as a lactation consultant, am so grateful for the work that Dr. Hale and you are doing because um, it's so different, pregnancy versus breastfeeding, what you can do and what you can't do. And most people just don't know. And it's a major reason that people discontinue breastfeeding. It is. And the risks are so, you know, the risks are so, so different between pregnancy and lactation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that when people are are lactating, they think they have more control over it. And um, they think that there's these constructs of what a good mother looks like and what a responsible woman looks like. And so a good mother will give up anything for their child, including their own health. And that's what we see happen a lot. Because a responsible woman takes care of their body and listens to their doctors when they say that they need medication or they need to change the way that they're doing. But what happens when those directly conflict against each other? And boy, have we seen an example of that in the last year with the COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I think it's an easy thing to for people to look at as if it's black and white. Um, when it is so far from the truth. Which leads us right into why we're here today. So I want to share the background with everyone as to how we got connected, because I just, I still can't get over this. And I think our listeners are going to be so surprised by what they're about to hear. So I was on Instagram very late one night. And I truly believe for the first time ever, I saw a New York Times uh, parenting post show up in my feed. And the headline said, Breastfeeding and the COVID vaccine. Breastfeeding after the vaccine is safe. And I thought, what? I am so happy and impressed someone finally cared enough to do this research because the story of vaccines, among the many stories, one of the facts about vaccines is they simply haven't valued pregnant women and breastfeeding women enough through the decades to even test us. I say us as a group of women globally. It went on to say, as I continued to read, this is a quote, researchers say they know enough about how vaccines generally affect breast milk not to be concerned. Now red flags are going off all around my my thinking. So I continued reading, and it went on to say the doctor who led the study noted that vaccine ingredients have a short lifetime and have no way of making it into breast milk. Well, now I'm definitely not believing what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because breast milk comes from blood, and anything that is in the blood obviously has some way of getting into breast milk, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And we, we do see that all the time. Um, and it's, it's a question for us about how much, and that's why we really focus on that here at the Infant Risk Center, is, is doing that very difficult quantification, how much is in the milk? Because exactly. that's- That's the real question for us to be able to decide how much risk is involved usually. And it varies tremendously, Mm -hmm. correct? I mean, not all things pass into breast milk at the same rate. So that's why it's so important to do this work. Absolutely not. So everything that a mom is um, in contact with has the chance of getting into her breast milk and probably is there to some degree. 
So anything that they put in their mouth, um, most times whenever you're, you're dealing with things in your environment and you're touching it, some things are absorbed through your skin. And so if you could quantify down to those tiny, tiny levels, you can probably find it. Uh, and that's what we have seen has happened here. Um, and then for us, you have that question, how much gets into your milk? There, There's passive transfer, which is what we usually look at. There are also things that are actively transported into your milk. So they are in higher concentrations in your milk than they are in your blood. And we really worry about things like that here, which is why we think that research is so important. Um, and then you have to take it to the next step too, because you say, okay, so if mom, if it's a medication, for example, there's a reason mom's taking it right? Um, for the vaccine or for other medicine. So if that then goes to the baby, you know, what is the risk involved there? So there are so many different things that we could quantify. Um, and unfortunately we're just never able to, to do everything that we really want to. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms to be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw-cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E.com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, 
and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. So it was untrue and it was frankly irresponsible of any doctor to come out and say the words, no way, there is no way for it to get into the breast milk, just not true. And I think quite unethical to declare such a thing because people will read it and believe it. I think it was a very strong statement. Um, and a lot of times whenever we work with physicians, uh, you know, physicians, we call it the art of medicine for a reason, right? That we have evidence and we'd like to have evidence, but there's a lot of gaps. And so you have to interpret and put those through. So I think it's, there's a difference in a researcher, um, a doctor of research and a doctor of medicine, because um, that's kind of their specialty, right? Is to take the research and to to turn it into something that their uh, patients can use. And um, I would say that, that it probably was something more along those artistic um flourishes that, that I would, I would put that statement in that box. Yes. I, I think that's, um, I think that's fair. I think the statement was, um, it was disappointingly conclusive where we shouldn't be so conclusive mm-hmm. to say there's no way. I, I, I think that that's a fair way to say that. Yes. Okay. Then I'll keep all my other, my, my private outrage a little more to myself. <laughs> Well, I think it's a, you know, whenever we're, we're here researching the field, it's so hard because um, I'm, I'm so happy to see your outrage. It's, it's great. We have the same outrage, um, but I'm much more familiar with it. And I've lived with it for a lot longer because it's so whenever you take this look at the COVID vaccine, um, I feel that way about almost every drug that we have, every woman that comes to us and says, Hey, is this safe? And I have to say, you know, I can't say anything conclusively, but what I can tell you is that your milk is still valuable. A lot of times, even if there is, are things in your milk, it can still be valuable. And it's, it's about that risk benefit because there are benefits that your baby is going to get from that breast milk. And there are benefits that you are going to get from breastfeeding. You know, it's, it's a dose intense response, which is just so beautiful. You know, you're the longer you breastfeed, the lower your risk of things like um, ovarian cancer or um, cardiovascular disease later in life. We're finding out all of these really great benefits for mom on top of all of these things that we've known for the past maybe decade or two about um, the benefits for baby and the antibodies that are in there and all of these extra ingredients that your body provides to baby that formula just doesn't have. You know, and what you're saying reminds me of something important that I learned from one of my favorite nutrition books I've ever read in my life by Dr. Robert Young, The PH Miracle. That book taught me more about nutrition on the body than anything I've read in my life. And I remember, you know, he talks about the effects of, you know, non-organic coffee or pesticides on produce. And, you know, you're halfway through the book and you're thinking, oh my God, like you're just so scared of everything you're eating. But then he says something very important after emphasizing the harm of pesticides. He said, listen, make no mistake, you are still better off eating the conventional red pepper than not eating a red pepper at all because the nutrients in it, your body still needs those nutrients. There is never a question that you're better off eating that. And it's kind of exactly what you're saying about breast milk, I think. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, you ha- they have the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's the same thing. Exactly. Here. We don't want to throw the milk away because we're afraid of, of anything that can be in it. Because the reality is, is whatever you're in, that's in the milk. Absolutely. And it's not like we can live a toxic free life. We go out, we breathe air that is impure. It's okay. We want as many nutrients in our bodies as possible to detoxify and to keep us healthy, despite those, those potential pollutants, right? Right, right. And I, I really want to, to hone in on the point, though, that um, the problems that we have here with the COVID vaccine and the questions that we're left with um, about what is safe and what isn't safe, those are the questions that we deal with with every medication because this is not new. This is not different. The fact that pregnant women and lactating women were excluded from trials, this is what we deal with with every drug. And so whenever we're making any kind of medical decisions, it's always a lot of times what our providers are using is rhetoric. You know, there's maybe a third of the drugs on the market have been looked at to try and quantify. And um, so what we rely on a lot of times is, so what have people done in the past? So what have mother, other mothers chosen to expose their children to? And what can we learn from that? And whenever you have a brand new drug that other people are, are using, like the COVID vaccine, and no one has tried it before and everyone has to try it at the same time, that's why we, you know, that system really breaks down very quickly. Um. So can we talk a little bit about the this New York Times study specifically and why the doctor was able to come to the conclusion that um, breastfeeding is safe after the vaccine? Yes. So the headline said breastfeeding is safe after the vaccine. Now to me, and probably to a majority of parents, they would think the vaccine ingredients have been shown to be non-harmful to the breastfed baby. That was certainly my assumption. As I read, I found that they were that that the conclusion of the study, and we're going to get to that in a second. That's quote study. Um, said vaccinated breast milk contains antibodies. So I said, "Oh my goodness!" First of all, she said, "There's no way certain things uh, in blood can get into the breast milk." Now the conclusion of the study is, "Yes, certain things did, and it was the vaccine antibodies." And they're calling that the good news, which is fine. Some people might agree that that's good news but they put it under the headline safe. So she basically concluded nothing harmful can possibly, she used the words, no way can get into the breast milk, but yet showed the antibodies did get into the breast milk all under the term, the headline safe. Highly misleading and contradictory. As I continued on, I said, well, let me get the name of these researchers and find the research because I'm really not trusting all the rhetoric embedded in this New York Times headline. Mm -hmm. So... There is reason to be excited. Six researchers agreed, it said, that newly vaccinated mothers are right to feel as if they have a new superpower. The antibodies generated after vaccination can indeed be passed through the breast milk. But whether that milk contains antibodies from the vaccine actually says nothing about whether that vaccine is actually safe for breastfeeding mothers. So that's when I dug deeper. I pulled up the research. I found a whole lot of other big headlines, by the way. They were very successful at getting that headline out there. The Associated Press, Apple News, they all jumped on that headline and spread it around the world about how safe the vaccine is. But then when I pulled up the study, I found the following. First, as I already indicated, the study never tested whether the vaccine is safe in those babies, only whether antibodies were transferred into the breast milk. 
big difference. Two, the study was funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the researchers were paid $600,000 to do that. Third, there were 50 women in the study, 31 in another. The 31 were almost entirely healthcare workers from the same city, which is about the opposite of what randomized controlled studies are. 31 breastfeeding mothers who were healthcare workers in the same city. It truly sounds like those doctors walked around the hospital and found whatever breastfeeding staff they had in the hospital and collected their breast milk for this study that made its way around the world. In fact, according to the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and this is a quote, this study did not achieve statistical significance. So now we're getting to some of the facts here. Go ahead. Yes. A lot of times whenever you're trying, whenever you're trying to prove safety, it's actually much, much more difficult than if you're trying to prove harm. Um, Because if you're trying to prove harm, you you're looking for an event and you would expect it to be at a certain rate. And so you actually calculate your sample size um, to try and be large enough to actually detect a difference. And it's so difficult in research um, to, to be able to foresee how many you need to find what big of a difference. And so that's why um, we have standard conventions and that's the entire field of statistics that, that will help you determine if your results are due to chance. So, Normally, whenever we talk about statistical significance, we're talking about if we find something true, if that is in fact true, or if it's just, you know, part of that, that random nature of the world. Um, Whenever you are trying to show that there is no difference, it's actually much, much harder and it takes a much larger sample. And so what I would say, whenever they don't reach statistical significance for that type of study, what they actually should say is that they they were not powered enough to find a difference. Um, and now, so when did that article come out? You'll have to remind me. Around April. Uh-huh. Just out of curiosity, why were they not able to look at thousands of people? Why only 31? There were plenty of people vaccinated, um, breastfeeding women. It, it probably had something to do, just the, the design of the study, the, the way that they enrolled their women. So if they were looking only at the same hospital, they just didn't find enough lactating women. But is there possible? Is it possible that they were hoping to not find any harm by having a small sample size? Um, you know, I think that if, if you didn't trust your researchers, you could definitely go down that path. Um, or if it's funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you could go down that path. <laughs> You could go down that path too. Uh, generally, I like to assume that if you That's are not the case, I know, I know. You like to assume that the people that you're working with and the people that are doing research are are have good intentions and are looking to find the thing that they're saying. And that's typically what we rely on statistics to be able to say. And that is what, if you um, had a researcher reading that paper, that's the conclusion that they would come to and say like, well, okay, they didn't find safety, but they actually weren't looking for safety. And they also weren't um, powered to say, no, there wasn't a difference, which is part of what's so challenging whenever you're reading research. Um, so whenever you say that you're trying to assume that a researcher has good intentions, it's a, it's a little bit of a tricky subject. So what we do to try and control for that is we look at their study and we try and have multiple studies to look at. So not just this one, but then over time, and that's again, another unfortunate thing over time, we have to have the time that multiple people will be able to generate the same results. 
All right, let's continue. Um, I finally just want to add that in the footnotes of the study, conflicts of interest were listed, and it showed that the researchers all had personal financial interests in at least eight different biotech companies between consulting, seats on their boards, and owning big pharma stock. <laughs> so this is what the public doesn't see. So we're looking at a misleading headline at the New York Times and other major news outlets indicating safety when safety wasn't tested, declaring opinions like this is good news and reason to celebrate. And what Trisha and I know from the work that we do is parents simply want to make informed decisions. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to just be able to look at some of the research themselves. This was at a, about a week after your September 16th research was published. You, in fact, looked at safety in breastfeeding moms who have the COVID vaccine and whether there is a transfer to the infants. You did find results. If I recall, it was 4.0, but you'll get into all of that. And, mm -hmm. um, and then that's when that's when I reached out to you and I was just so happy that you returned the call and we had a conversation about it and you agreed to come on and talk to us about that research and then to, to help empower the listener with how to, how to interpret research themselves going forward. So why don't we start talking about why you did the study and what you did? Yes, yes, absolutely. So part of what we have here at the Infant Risk Center, not only do we do the lab research, but we have um, a call center and um, some apps as well to help people make better decisions. And we know that it's, it's a topic that you get a lot of opinions from a lot of different people. And uh, not all of them know how to, to look at the research for lactation or even know where to go to find it. And so that's what we did here at the Infant Risk Center. Dr. Hale, who I work very closely with, um, was getting these questions all the time. And so about 10 or 15 years ago, he opened the Infant Risk Center for that purpose. It's staffed with nurses and um, we go through uh, kind of like the, the textbooks that we write to educate our nurses and they can whenever a caller comes in who is either a mother or a healthcare provider, because healthcare providers are not actually educated in lactation many times. Um, so not at all. In. Right. Usually not exactly. at all. It's so sad. So they can call in and say, Hey, I have a mom, um, that I'm going to start on these medications. Is it safe for them to breastfeed? And we can inform them on, on what we believe the risks to be. And, uh, unfortunately we have to base that on, um, a lot of shaky evidence, uh, but it is at least evidence. And so what we were seeing whenever people were calling, it was our number one request for a very long time is, is the COVID vaccine safe in lactating women? And um, what the moms would ask whenever they call us is what's going to happen to my baby. And so whenever we go out and look for the research to try and give them an answer, it was, we found the exact same thing that, that you found was that there are a lot of very smart people working very hard to find answers to a question um, that wasn't actually the question the moms were asking. And so they would look for things like the antibodies in the breast milk. And sometimes um, they would look for things like the mRNA from the vaccine actually in the breast milk. But whether you can say yes or no, even if you find a definitive answer to that question, that's not the one the moms were asking. So we knew that there were so many healthcare providers that were working directly with COVID patients. You know, If you think about your nursing staff at hospitals, they're usually young women is your nursing staff. And those young women have babies and they are lactating and they are pregnant. And so um, they were at the highest risk of being exposed. And what we found is that a lot of them were deciding to get the vaccine regardless. 
Um, and in the beginning, they were being denied the vaccine, even if they chose and said, I want the vaccine. Many women would tell us that they were told that they could not have it, even having done their own risk benefit evaluation. And so being in this world, we thought, well, if there are all these people that are already doing it, we want to benefit from them. We want to gain the any kind of information that they could give us on what was happening to them and to their infants. And so that's exactly what we did. We put together that survey and um, just sent it out to, to our network and to the world. And we ended up getting about 6,000 people who responded. And I think it was about 4,500 people who actually qualified and were able to finish the survey. And, um, you know, we tried to give them uh, the, the requisites for you to participate in the survey. We wanted to, them to have enough time to actually see what would happen to the infant afterwards. So there was a waiting period. And um, what we it did end up finding is that, uh, some moms were reporting that they thought that their infants were fussier or, or were being fussy or were having a little bit of sleep issues. Um, and I think it goes to back to your question too, of how do you evaluate what is good research? If you're doing any, any kind of research that's retrospective, it's never going to be as good as research that you start with the group and you see what happens in the future. Um, but we wanted to be able to get the information out to people as quickly as possible. And, so and you that, had a much larger sample size, much, much yes, larger by the hundred folds. Really, hundred folds, yes. Right. And you were looking at very different outcomes. Oh, absolutely. They were looking for antibodies and we were looking for infant symptoms. And this the responses in the babies, it does seem mirrored common vaccine responses, generally speaking. Yes. Um, but again, we don't have a control group. So that's, it's such a big problem. And we so wish that we had designed it a little, you know, slowed down a little bit and said, okay, we want a group of moms that didn't get the vaccine that are lactating to just tell us what their babies were doing. You know, what percentage of them were fussy and not sleeping because now all we have is, all right, well, we know that some of them were fussy. Some of them were sleepier. Some of them, you know, had a fever. Where the mother's asked if they were though fussier than usual. I mean, it didn't, weren't they asked if there was a change in their I baby? Do, if they were fussier than usual. Yes. But yeah. So that, that, so the, the, the control, so to speak was the baseline is the mother's own experience with her baby versus the, the, the mother's experience with her baby after the shot. Yes. So, you know, from so a researcher. It is kind of, I mean, you could interpret it that way. Um, I, I still think, you know, you're, you're asking a mom if you're, baby is fussier than normal on one day versus the next, you know, it's, some of them are going to say yes. But part of the problem with vaccines in general is we have had moms, let's just say moms, but parents who say, I know my child, I know there's a difference in my child. And when you have enough of these out there, I like, at what point do we just take the mother seriously? Because no one knows our babies like we do. There's a lot to be said for that. Right. And, and that's how all good research questions come about is by listening to people and saying, okay, what do you see? And then what can we go and design a study to, to try and um, find the root cause of that? You know, is it the vaccine or is it, you know, that there are other things that could be into play that we don't think of. And, and as a researcher, that's your, you have to listen to what people want to know in order to be able to answer their question. Were there any other prominent side effects? Or? <sighs> yes. So we, 
asked moms about uh, directly if they had a fever, a rash, diarrhea, vomiting, if they slept more than usual or less than usual, if they were eating more or less than usual, if they were more fussy, um, or if they had any other symptoms, which they could report to us in a free text field. Um, and so the, the biggest things that we found, the, the biggest positives were that they slept more than normal and that they were more fussy than normal. And we also found that moms that um, reported that they were feeling worse also, you know, there was a big difference in what they reported in their infants. And so there, there are good questions about that. So that's the kind of thing that whenever you're a researcher, you see that and you say, okay, so could this, what could this be? Could this be the vaccine actually affecting baby? Um, and we would need to design some sort of uh, trial so that you could see, is it the vaccine or is it because mom's more tired? Was it directly due to the vaccine or was it due to mom not feeling good? Well, we're looking at fussiness, whether the baby slept more. What were some of the less common responses you received? Um, the least common was two. that they, the changes in feeding. And we didn't have uh, almost no moms that they were less fussy than normal. Um, and then rash, vomiting, diarrhea, and fever were all almost nothing. Um, can you talk about the stats, the 4.0? In a fully adjusted logistic regression model reports of post-maternal vaccination symptoms in the breastfed child were associated with a four times greater odds of adverse breastfeeding events. Yes. So this is what I was saying that this is in the moms that had symptoms, vaccine symptoms. Those are the breastfed babies that they had four times greater of having an adverse effect. That's what that's saying. Does that make sense? So, yes. So mothers who experienced their own symptom from the COVID-19 yes. vaccine, those babies of those mothers who are breastfeeding had four times greater, the four times greater chance of their baby having an adverse reaction, such as sleeplessness, yes. or sleep, yes. change in sleep, more fussiness. If the vaccine was disruptive to the mother, it then showed it would a disrupt. high correlation in being disruptive to the baby, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Can you explain the 4.0 again? Just one more time. Okay, so if you, because we don't have a control group, we can't say it's against non-breastfed moms. So what we did is separated out moms that reported that they had symptoms and moms that so did or did not have symptoms after the vaccine. And so the moms that said that they did have symptoms, their babies were four times more likely to have symptoms than the others. Were there any women who didn't have any adverse reactions to the vaccine, but they did notice a change in their babies. So that that's the statistically significant. You expect to have numbers in both groups, um, but we did find a statistically significant difference. And if you look at the confidence interval in that, so a confidence interval is how we we're ninety five percent sure that the actual number, because we're just looking at a sample of forty five hundred women, right? When we know that there are hundreds of thousands of women that are out there, so we're trying to see if our sample would be representative of that actual entire population. That's um, what confidence interval is. Yes, and, yes, and that's what a confidence interval is. And we found um, that range of those infants, um, if we want to say we're 95% sure, we think that that number is somewhere between 2.3 and 7. Right, and that's based on the standard deviation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's Wait, explain, the the, explain the 2.3 and 7. So for us to be 95% sure that we're capturing the, uh, the actual odds ratio that there's a difference in these um, women who didn't have 
symptoms and women who did have symptoms. For us to be sure, 95% sure, we're saying that there's a 2.327 times difference in their babies. 2.3 to 7.0 times difference. That's the difference, yeah. If we want to be very sure, 95% sure, then we know it's somewhere between those two numbers. It's really just about if you can be sure if your result from your sample is representative of the entirety. 19 out of 20 times, the actual number of the population will be um, found in this group. So if you want to not be very sure, you could you could decrease your sample size. To but maybe 31, like to, 30, like to 31. <laughs> to, to 31, yes. <laughs> Do we have any long-term studies on um, vaccines and breast milk? Lo- looking at long-term outcomes in babies? I would have to look it up. I feel like there might be epidemiologic data. Perhaps there's some data out there. I would be really surprised if you could find it, actually. Uh, with COVID. Uh, so in the beginning, that's why they said, you know, okay, let's not let pregnant women or get the vaccine. And then what they ended up finding out is that um, pregnant women who have COVID have such a higher risk of um, these, these really horrendous events. So we have moms in hospitals that have things like um, clots in their lungs and clots in you know, in their heart, they're having heart attacks and things like that. And we don't really know, you know, is that related to, to COVID itself or what's related to the risk of having the vaccine with those kinds of issues. But we, for, for every, um, let me find this so that you can. But one of the things I want to point out, Dr. Crutch, that, um, that is really, I think, unfortunate in how they're collecting this data is if someone isn't 14 days out from their second shot, they're calling them unvaccinated. And that's unfair. I think that's incredibly unfair. So if someone has the vaccine or even their second dose and two days later has a clot, they're going into the hospital with that clot and they're going under the category of the unvaccinated, which I think is highly misleading. And I don't think that's accidental. It's hard. Um, You know, I think that it's part of the simplification that happens with with any kind of data collection. Um, And it is hard. It sounds like part of an agenda. Well, I think there should be the, another category. The risk of adverse reaction the highest in the first couple of days. So how could you eliminate? Yeah, the first. How could you calling them unvaccinated? I mean that that is really unfair because mm-hmm. you're eliminating the highest risk time of an adverse reaction. Mm-hmm. I think that that is the reason that we have the um, adverse event uh, collection systems. That's why we have those reported in the var- um, the VARES database. So there's the VARES database and there are a couple other ones as well. Unfortunately, the VARES database is actually uh, only intended to capture pregnancy because while we're here concerned about lactation, unfortunately, because researchers don't see that it is a, a, a large risk, the risk is so much smaller than in pregnancy or um, in other phases of life that that's why they don't research it, right? They want to reallocate those resources to areas that they think are more risky. So in the end, they have said that other researchers are collecting information on lactation. 
But the, this comes back to the what I think is so unfair to these earnest couples who are educated and they're trying to get good information and they go to these doctors they trust who, and they're told, get the vaccine. I think it would be more fair to say it is your choice what to do. We really don't have much data one way or the other. This is the risk of getting the vaccine, potentially. We don't even really know. This is the risk of getting COVID, potentially. We don't really know. And even that data in the hospital is very clouded based on when people had the vaccines and what category they're put under. I just think it would be more fair to say to expecting couples, this is a really hard decision and it's yours to make. It is a really hard decision. Um, And I think it's really hard. The people that are making the decisions for public health, it's a hard decision for them to make too. Um, And at a personal level, it's, it's really challenging. It's really challenging, especially when what your ultimate goal is to keep you and your baby healthy, right? So what is your best advice to parents as far as seeing big headlines, receiving pressure, recognizing rhetoric, and then actually looking for data? I mean, what's your, how do you tell someone who doesn't have your pile of research degrees <laughs> and it, experience how to get to this data or, or motivation like I had to put a couple hours into finding all this stuff. I mean, what do you, what do you say to those people? It's an uphill battle. It is, it's very hard. And I think that the best thing that you can do is um, try and surround yourself by, by healthcare professionals that are willing to have discussions with you and help you so that you can, if particularly if you find information and, and do that research and look through it, that uh, you can take it to them and have a conversation with them or, or to use resources like the infant risk center. You know, this is our job. This is what we look at every day. And so we try and put that information together in a way that we can, we can say, all right, this is the, the conclusions that we're coming to. And this is the research that we're using to support it. Anyone who is going to tell you that, that you need to do something without um, having a, a discussion, without being willing to talk to you about why, um, you know, that's a red flag. That's, that's whenever you need to say, I think I need to find someone who wants to listen and wants to help me instead of just move on to the next person. This COVID-19 vaccine is sort of an unprecedented time. We've never really seen the pressure for vaccines like this ever before. Is this going to prompt some better research on vaccines and pregnancy and lactation? Is it already happening? Is there going to be the ability to do randomized controlled trials? Are we going to get some real data out of it? I hope so. I sure hope so. Um, There have been some good um, opinion pieces that have come out from very prominent people saying, I can't believe this is a problem because we're protecting pregnant and lactating women from research, not with research. And that's sad. That needs to change. And, and we are working on that. I think that um, almost every researcher that is in this field, that's one of their, their goals, is this needs to be a bigger part of the decision. And when you approve a medication, it has to be. You can't just ignore all of these women. Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. 
It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code DOWNTOBIRTH to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms. Do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code down to birth to save 15%. So can you tell us as we're wrapping up now, um, more about the infant risk center and why our listeners can go to your website, get some of your resources. How can they make use of all that you guys are doing and all that you have to offer? Absolutely. We have a lot of resources on our website that anyone can find and poke around on. And, um, Hopefully we're, we're answering the questions that you really want answered. And if we're not, then we're more than happy to, to talk with you on the phone. That's what our nurses do day in and day out. And whenever we are presented with a question that they don't know, um, they'll come straight to Dr. Hill and to I to say, hey, you know, this is something that we haven't seen before. Uh, and then we'll, we'll try and answer that. And that actually usually becomes our next research question. Um, so it's, it's really, um, self, it, it's very satisfying to work with women and give them the answers that they want. Um, unfortunately answers that they want are a lot of times, uh, a little bit more lofty than what we can give them because of the quality of the information that we have, but, but we're working on it and we're trying to amass the amount of information to be able to go to pe- people at the FDA, for example, and say, Hey, this is a problem. All of these women are coming to us because our university has decided to to allow us to do this without any funding. We have no external funding and the university um, supports us in doing this. But what if we weren't here? I would like to just add too for our listeners that any um, mother out there, any breastfeeding mom who is told by another care provider that they need to discontinue breastfeeding because of something their provider wants to put them on, should prompt a call to you guys because yeah. most of the time that's not the case. We see it all the time. We see it all the time. It's actually the number one reason. Medications is the number one reason that healthcare providers tell women to stop breastfeeding. Exactly. Um, that's and yeah. it can be for reasons like they have mastitis and they need an antibiotic. And we just know that <laughs> that is not true. I mean, so many medications are actually safe in breastfeeding or or how you take them and how you breastfeed, you can work it out so that you can continue breastfeeding. Yes. About 90% of the women who call us, we are able to um, identify a way to, to keep them breastfeeding, whether that be, you know, the, the drug is actually safe that we, we think. And um, what we also can do is help them come up with a, a schedule so that they can miss those, those times when the drug is 
going to be in the milk and they can limit the exposure to their baby or, or tell them that, okay, for two days, you need to stop breastfeeding and then you can return to breastfeeding. And I think that, you know, for most providers, it's just, you know, that's the end of the story and it shouldn't be. Just out of curiosity, how often do you get calls about alcohol and breastfeeding and what do you tell moms? Oh, this is great. We actually are going to have a new article come out with for that right before the, um, the holidays. A so, pro drinking article, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't, we have to hesitate. Okay. We try not to say pro drinking of because uh, almost everyone, every or governmental organization says, you know, it's best just to not do that. But really, I mean, uh, so what we're doing is coming up with a calculator that instead of it being based on blood alcohol concentration, which is what almost all online um, tools will give you is, you know, there's this rule of thumb that says wait two hours for every um, drink, but that's a lot less accurate if you're a very small or a large person. And if you have multiple drinks. And so there was actually some research, some great research done. I think it was in the nineties looking at how much alcohol actually gets in based on those two parameters and height. They did a bunch of other things, but what they found is height and number of weight and number of drinks are the two things that matter. And so we're going to have a calculator for that on our um, website shortly. And it is based on actual alcohol concentrations in milk rather than in blood. And the logo is going to be like a little sketch of a breastfeeding mom with a martini in her hand, right? (laughs) Actually, uh, I had some friends and we got together and uh, they had champagne glasses. And so we took a picture with those (laughs) champagne glasses with a... uh, a pump in the back, like a, a manual expression pump with milk. So I did that this weekend. That's what I do in my free time. This is what those with doctorates do, multiple degrees. A um, <laughs> couple of quick questions. One, um, it, my first question is, is the extent of your service to the public around whether drugs get into transfer into breast milk? Or do you do anything beyond that? That's my first question. The second is about whether it's a free service you provide. Okay. So I would say that the pillar of what we do is based on medications and milk, but we are working to expand that. Um, You know, we would like to also look at how it affects the infant and um, how maternal nutrition affects these kinds of decisions, because, you know, just like drugs get into milk, so does your food. So your food is so important. So we actually have a, a PhD that has joined us. Um, so she does her research on nutrition. She's from Cornell and she's fabulous. So she's joined the team and we really want to be able to focus on the, the bigger picture. But in the meantime, we're, we're still going to keep doing our work on medications and um, breast milk and on translating that. So we do have the free service to, to call our nurses. It's from eight to five central time, Monday through Friday, regular business hours. Um, and those nurses are are on the phones um, all day long. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to wait because uh, we are not able to, to get to about 30% of our phone calls. So the volume is pretty high. But um, because we know that that wait is, is kind of long, we've developed uh, an app called Mommy Meds. It is $3.99 per year, but it goes directly to fund our research and um, the, the work that we do to get to the answers. So um, Luckily, I think that that's a good way to get information 24-7 um, on all the drugs that we know about. I think if you compare us to any other group of uh, special interests, what happens is you have a mom who's breastfeeding and then they stop. And then that no longer is a primary concern of hers. So 
if if you remember, if you remember the issues that you have and you can take those um, to your legislators and just say, you know, this was a really big problem for this phase of my life and I'm out of it, but it still matters to other moms and support them in that. I think that's the reason why we don't have um, the change that other groups have been able to make. And it's because we don't have that that group of people that stand up and say, this really matters to me and it needs to change and we need to keep going. We don't have lobbyists. Exactly. It's like the whole perinatal industry at large. The change, the improvement has to come from us. It will not come from the politicians or the hospital administrators. It has to come from us. It has to come from us. And it's a lot to ask because this is a phase of your life where now you have a child. Now now you have a child. Your whole life is different. You're very busy. But just please remember us and remember um, what needs to happen and make it happen. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live online, serving women and couples everywhere. You can email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com or follow us on Instagram at downtobirthshow. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thank you for tuning in, and as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. I have to ask you, you said you're getting another degree? Yes. And, and is it another doctorate, another master's? What are you getting another degree in? Uh, no. So I have, you know, my bachelor's in, is in nutrition and I've got the master's in business and the doctorate in pharmacy. And this will be a doctorate in translation health science. You'll have a double doctorate. Mm-hmm. Dr. Dr. Crutch. Right. Yes. Yes. That's what my husband jokes about. He, oh, really? he doctor, doctor. Um, and I so thought that was so original. <laughs> yeah. So one is a research doctorate and one is a professional doctorate, which I think is, is really valuable because like we've talked about, you have these clinicians that that have to bridge all of these gaps of questions. And then you have all of these researchers that are answering the wrong questions. <laughs> and so um, we really need people to, to bridge that gap in the middle. And uh, we're working on it. So there's a field called translational health science for a reason. It's been a long, hard road, but it's so rewarding. It's just, I, I have the best job in the world. You know, I get to help people and use the science that I love to do it.